0: Let's turn to our scripture reading now. We'll be reading two passages from the New Testament. First of all, from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, and also from Philippians chapters 1 and 2. We start in John 1, verse 1. nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. Philippians 1, verse 27. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Holding fast to the word of life, so that at the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So far, our scripture reading. Let's sing in response from hymn 25, stanzas 1 and 3. The text for the morning sermon is taken from Philippians chapter 2, not chapter 1 as it has on the liturgy sheet, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. We'll read those words again. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. As our amen to the proclamation of God's word, we will sing afterwards from hymn 21 through 4. a congregation of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, peace on earth. That's what the angels sang when they revealed the good news of Christ's birth to the shepherds who were in the fields of Bethlehem. When we look around us, though, we see a great lack of peace, don't we? We see a great lack of peace in the world. There is much war and strife and bloodshed everywhere. The church is being persecuted in many places. There's also a lack of peace in the church. There's a lack of unity in the church. And also in our own lives, we see a lack of peace, don't we? There is a lack of peace in our families, in our homes in our marriages, and why is that, brothers and sisters? Well, it is because we are by nature such horribly self-centered people, aren't we? By nature, we are set on demanding our own rights. We're set on putting ourselves first. But, says Scripture, this is not to be our mindset, This is not to be our mindset. We are called to have the mind of Christ, and that's what our text reminds us. And so I proclaim to you the Word of God with this theme, that Christmas reminds us that Christians are to have the mind of Christ. We will consider how he humbled himself, and secondly, how we ought to humble ourselves. When we celebrate Christmas, we remember the birth of our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, We remember that he was born in Bethlehem under unique circumstances. He and his parents, for example, received very distinguished visitors, magi from the east who had seen his star in the the sky. We also remember how the angels proclaimed to some shepherds near the fields of Bethlehem that their Messiah had been born, that he had come to bring peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased We also remember that this was a very special birth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So his birth was a miraculous birth. But what's even more miraculous, congregation, is that Jesus was God incarnate. The birth of Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the Son of God, and that means the coming in the flesh of the Son of God. God became man. The Gospel of John begins with the well-known words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in that one single sentence, John first distinguishes between the Word and and God, but then he identifies the Word with God. And then he writes in, in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And now this congregation, this is the true miracle of Christmas. The most astounding thing that happened when Christ was born was not that he was born of a virgin, although that's astounding enough in and of itself. But the thing that should really make us astonished is that he was born at all. That God would become a man, that he would take on human flesh, that is astonishing. That the creator of heaven and earth would become like one of the creatures that he had made even taking on the flesh and blood of those who rebelled against him that is what should make us stop in our tracks and that is what should fill us with awe and amazement because why would God do this well first of all he did this because of his love for for sinners God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did this to keep his promise to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, and to Israel. And then we read in Galatians 4 verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive Adoption as sons. This is why God sent His Son into the world. But again, we also have to ask, what did it take for Him to come? The Apostle Paul writes that Christ humbled Himself and emptied Himself. Or as other English translations have it, He made Himself nothing. The greatness of our Lord's self-humiliation can be measured By how far he was prepared to stoop. How far he was prepared to stoop from the heights from which he came. He was the Son of God. In very nature, God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Christ is is God himself. And the Bible is very clear about the heights from which Christ has come. If we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, for example, where the apostle describes the vision of Christ, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And when I saw him, writes John, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 5, you see there in that vision, John sees in that vision, that this lamb is also worthy of the honor of, that God receives, the one who's on the throne. In verse 8, 8b, the elders, you read that the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then, then, verse 13 Be To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Well, brothers and sisters, that is the glory where Christ came from. Yes, John sees a vision of the resurrected Christ. But Christ also says somewhere in the Gospel of John, That he has the glory of the Father, and he is going back to the glory that he had before the Father sent him. And so, what we have to conclude from this is that Jesus Christ possesses equality with God. He deserves the same reverence, the same glory, the same honor, the same worship. And yet it's clear that he humbled himself. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He laid aside some of his glory and splendor in order to live here on this earth and to dwell with us as an ordinary human. He didn't look to his position or status. He didn't count that position or status something that he should jealously hang on to and maintain and protect. He didn't guard his rights as son of God. Rather, he considered our position our low position, and He was willing to stoop to our level, to live in the middle of our tears and our dirt and our grime and our lack of peace. And so the incarnation of the Son of God doesn't mean that God changed into a human. He wasn't a new form of God, but the incarnation means that God added something to His divine nature. He took upon Himself a human nature and joined His divine nature to a human nature, for our salvation. He made himself nothing, emptying himself. Again, that doesn't mean he lost his divine attributes. He did not lay aside his divine power and wisdom. Since God is immutable, he cannot change. And he didn't transfer his divine attributes into his human nature. His human nature, for example, is not omnipresent But at the same time, his divine nature remains fully divine. And so he didn't make himself nothing by subtraction, but by addition. He made himself nothing by adding humanity. And that, congregation, is the great miracle of Christmas. That the baby born in Bethlehem was fully and truly man, and at the same time, fully and truly divine. That's the miracle and the mystery of Christmas. In his incarnation, the Son of God became something that he was not previously, something that required humility, something that required total humiliation. He lays aside his glory and his privileged position and his exaltation. He makes himself of no reputation. In fact, he even allowed himself his own divine and exalted status to be subject to human attack, to denial, and to criticism. He came to his own, writes John, and his own did not receive him. And we know what happened to him when he lived on this earth, don't we? The Son of God was beaten and mocked and spit upon and abused and tortured and murdered, despised and rejected pierced for our transgressions. He didn't just take on the form of a man, but he took on the form of a very low man, of low station, with no exaltation and no dignity. And he became obedient, perfectly obedient, to his Father in heaven, even to the extent of dying on the cross. And there he hung in complete, naked shame as a condemned criminal. The Bible, congregation, the Bible says that it's a rare thing for someone to be willing to die for a righteous person. But that a good man would be willing to humble himself to the degree that Jesus did, that is truly breathtaking. Because he died for those who hate him. He died for his enemies, the righteous for the unrighteous, the offended for the offenders, the innocent for those who betrayed him. So words like astounding and amazing and awe-inspiring and breathtaking doesn't even begin to describe it, does it? That he, the offended Lord of glory, should so willingly enter into such humiliation, should bring reverence to our hearts and praise to our lips. The Lord of glory humbled himself for men and women and boys and girls like you and I who are so full of pride by nature, And he died for people who are already dead to bring them back to life. He did what the first Adam failed to do. Because what did Adam do in paradise? The deceiver came to him and said, if you eat from that fruit, you will be like God. So what did Adam do? He grasped for equality with God. He listened to the tempter. But by contrast, Jesus who always had the right to equality with God, did not refuse to become obedient. He even was willing to become a servant. Pouring out his life unto death, he did what Adam refused to do. He willingly served faithfully. And while Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into the world, by contrast, Jesus' obedience brings righteousness and life into the world, He came to undo the disobedience of Adam. He came to experience the crushing weight of the wrath of God, which Adam had brought brought crashing down on the human race. And to do this, he had to become obedient to his father's plan and to his father's will. And he did this throughout his entire life. From his incarnation, from his conception to his death, Jesus submitted himself to his father's will. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? when he knew what was coming, when every human instinct told him to run because he knew what was coming, he said to the Father, your will, not mine. And so the few verses of our text truly describe the greatness of God. Because the greatness, true greatness, congregation, is marked by humility. Which man or woman would naturally act or think like this. This this can only come from God. The reality of the incarnation of the Son of God is truly divinely inspired. Christmas is truly something marvelous, a great miracle. Jesus Christ, who by nature is divine, took upon himself a human nature, and without leaving his divinity behind, he willed to be born from a virgin's womb. And willingly lived on this earth. He is truly Emmanuel, our God with us. Willingly came to live with us in our muck, in our grime, in our lives. And he came to show us the love of God, and he did it by making himself of no account. And congregation, this isn't merely a theological truth; it's a wonderful reality. And it's a reality that Christ also portrayed in his own life here on earth. And elsewhere in the Gospel of John, there's a wonderful picture of how Christ did this. During the Last Supper, Jesus portrayed what Paul describes here in Philippians chapter 2. John chapter 13, where John describes this picture. We read, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew this. Well, that runs parallel to what Paul writes about Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And then John continues to write in chapter 13, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments. He was willing to make himself nothing. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, and wiped them with a towel... He was willing to be a servant. And he showed us, he showed his disciples what that looks like. So you see how the theology explained by Paul is displayed in the life of Christ. And it's no wonder such theology then is, is written down in such poetic language like Paul uses. And that theology is also then to be displayed in the lives of those who follow Christ. Christ. After Jesus washed their feet, he told his disciples, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. <clears throat> For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And so, congregation, we also need to consider how we ought to humble ourselves. What We need to consider what it means then to have the mind of Christ. Because that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is trying to get at here in Philippians chapter 2. And that's what we're taught in the first few verses, especially. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, writes Paul. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing of self, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. The early church theologian, Augustine, was once asked to name the three principal characteristics of a Christian. He said the first characteristic is humility. The second characteristic is humility. And now you know the third one. The third characteristic is humility. And that's the theme that Paul is expounding on here in our text That is the message which the Holy Spirit wants us to understand from these words, that we develop a mindset in our fellowship with one another which is consistent with the mindset of Jesus Christ, because it is the only mindset for those who are in Christ. The miracle of the Incarnation and all that we learn from Christ's humiliation, it should have an effect, it must have an effect on our minds and our lives. Not only should it produce in us praise and worship, but also a like-minded humility. And why did Paul want to emphasize this in his letter to the Philippians? Well, Paul is pointing here to the most basic attitude that we need for having harmonious relationships. And notice that he doesn't come up with a a 12-step plan for having these kind of relationships, but he simply points to the attitude of Jesus Christ. And let's just just think about it for a moment, Congregation. What happens? What happens when things in our relationships go off kilter? What happens when somebody does something to do to you that makes you upset, makes you feel hurt? How do you react when your boss asks you to do something you don't want to do, or you don't get the raise you think you deserve? What do we usually do? We insist on having respect on receiving respect, don't we? We insist on being right. We insist on our rights. That's our natural inclination, isn't it? And what is it that's so often the cause of our squabbles? What's at the root of the tensions and the frictions and the disagreements that so often characterize so many of our relationships and our human existence? It's our self-centeredness, isn't it? It's our attitude of not wanting to admit when we're wrong. Our attitude of self-justification. I'm right, you're wrong, and even if I'm wrong, I'm not going to admit it. And I'll try to weasel my way out of it until it looks like I'm right. I think we all know what that attitude looks like. And the message of our text is that if you want peace in your life, then you need to imitate the attitude of Christ. Christ. If you want peace in your life, peace in your marriage, peace in your home, then we have to have the mind of Christ. We have to be humble. We have to imitate his way of thinking. Be ready to put others first. Think less of yourself and think more of your wife. Consider your husband more significant than yourself. Think of your friends as better than yourself develop a mindset in your fellowship with one another which is consistent with the mindset of Jesus Christ, which, as I said before, is the only mindset for those who are in Christ. And note as well that Paul doesn't encourage us to muster up this attitude for ourselves. It doesn't help to to make a New Year's resolution. I have to become more humble. We cannot muster the strength for this ourselves, but we depend on the Holy Spirit who enables us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what's meant by the words in verse 13. It is God who works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. The congregation, there's even a higher reason for imitating Christ. We read in Philippians 1, verse 27, that we are instructed to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, we are to live as citizens of heaven in this world. As Christians, we're called to be imitators of Christ in this world. And so our conduct must be worthy of the name Christian. Why? Because we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The world is watching. Your coworkers are watching the people in Elora and surrounding area they know who you are. The boys and girls, when you play sports teams from other schools, they know where you're coming from. They know who you are. And if, we, if they see selfish ambition among us, if they see that we put ourselves first, that we think more highly of ourselves and of, our, of others, then how is Christ being glorified? And if you act selfishly and without humility... What are you really saying about the self-humbling work of Christ for you? Have you ever thought of it that way? And so Paul writes, Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any comfort from his love? I'm sure you would say yes. Do you have any participation in his spirit? I'm sure you would say yes. Well then... Goes on, Paul, really, he's saying, then how are you living that out? If you have these things, then how are you showing it? Are you showing it in your affection and sympathy for others? Are you showing it by being in full accord with one another? Are you seeking the peace of the household of God? Are you trying to live in harmony with others at home, at work, in your family, in the church? You see, congregation, we are called to put on display the humility and the attitude of Christ. Why? Because we carry his name. By faith, you have union with Jesus Christ. His spirit dwells in you. And may it be our prayer then that our union with Jesus Christ would also lead us to greater humility. That it would lead us to imitate him more and more. So let's take time to consider what Christ-like humility means. Let us learn then not to stand up for our so-called rights and insist on them, but instead be willing to give them up even for the sake of others. Since we are united with Christ, we're also united with one another, and and we're called to express that unity, not just in church or when we're sitting around the Lord's Supper table. But every day of our lives, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves and look also to the interests of others. Become imitators of Jesus Christ, for He is the light of the world and you are to be that light. We read that in the same chapter, Philippians 2 verse 15 We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, and we are called to shine like stars in the universe. We are to be lights in the universe. Jesus says elsewhere, you are the light of the world. And if we are the light of the world, we need to let our light shine. You must let the light of Christ shine through you So that others might be illumined. Why? So that others will see and believe. That's so important, congregation. And it starts in our homes. At school and in the church. But also at work and in society. Do as Christ did. So that others will notice. Practice the true spirit of Christmas. So that others will notice. Because... I'm sure you will agree that everyone's used to seeing bickering and and disagreements and quarrels and arguments. That's so common. That's just everyday stuff. Because we all live by, are driven by selfishness. But let us be different, congregation. We are Christians and we carry the name of Christ. Let us then be true ambassadors of the gospel and of the name of Christ. Let our lives, let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of Christ's humiliation. And in a world that's constantly looking for peace, we have a message. The church has a message that can give peace, the only message that can truly give peace. And it's our privilege, congregation, to live that message and demonstrate that message as we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. So then we are called to be imitators of Him, to let our light shine. To follow our Lord and Master, let us then bow our knees and not only confess with our mouth that He is Lord, but confess with our life that He is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us show with our life that He is Lord, for that's what He is. He is King, and we're called to submit to Him, not just on the last day. He is victorious now. Every knee bows to him. Satan bows to him. Sin and death have to bow to him. Nations bow to him. All creation bows to him, for he is master and he is sovereign. And this Christ, this great king, he loves us. He humbled himself for us. He died for us so that we might be exalted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Isn't that something to live for? And shouldn't that motivate us? Amen.